This is Dialogue on Teaching. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center, and of course I'm here with Dr. Paul Myrie, Associate Director. He is our sound engineer. It is my great pleasure to recommend and to have in our presence um, my colleague, my friend, my longtime friend, Dr. Evelyn Parker. Dr. Parker is a former academic dean at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University, and she is the Susanna Wesley Centennial Professor of Practical Theology. Welcome, Dr. Parker, to our show. Thank you, Dr. Westfield. Thank you for having me. We are in the moment of COVID. We are in the moment when people had uh, very little time to migrate their face-to-face -face classes to online classes. We are in a moment where people have had uh, one or two sessions of their classes online. So people uh, discovered that they did not do it well and feel bad about that. People discovered that uh, they did better than they thought they would do. People were able to see their students on the screen and their students in fatigue. People are reporting that they have Zoom fatigue themselves by being online too long, too much during the day. Um, so there's all kinds of things happening. Help us get a sense of online teaching and what it means to be creative in online teaching, as well as what are the standards we should use for ourselves and our students in online teaching? Thank you, Dr. Westville. I appreciate that question. And yes, we are in uh, uncharted waters with the uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, and uh, it's opportunities for us to not only think about teaching uh, online uh, during a, a crisis like this, but also uh, to think about creative teaching online as well as uh, in our traditional settings uh, uh, when we have opportunity to do that in the future. So I, I'd like to kind of reflect on your question around um, this, the whole idea of the body and uh, the practice of honoring the body that came out of the Valparaiso project with uh, Dorothy Bass uh, and others. Uh, 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 Stephanie Paulsell did some really nice uh, writing about honoring the body in that Practicing Our Faith book, as well as a subsequent book on honoring the body um, that she did. Uh, I've done some writing on honoring the body. I'm not going to get into the deep uh, theoretical ideas that, that those writings present, but to just use that as an overarching way to organize uh, the conversation. Uh, about teaching online and honoring the body. So uh, if, we, if we think about bodies coming together in an online space uh, for teaching and learning, uh, I think it's important that we think about uh, content as well as delivery of the content and then assessment um, in ways that honor students' bodies as well as the teachers' bodies. So this teaching learning reciprocal uh, event is wholesome for all bodies, right? So um, let me uh, just start by saying um, uh, there should be compassion for everyone uh, that this is a new venture in, in the backdrop of students' minds. Uh, there is a concern for them, their own bodies. Uh, you know, have I been in places that have exposed myself in community or even on a plane or whatever, you know, uh, as well as 
parents and families um, uh, that are in different parts of the world, whether it's New York or it's in uh, a rural area like uh, Mississippi, where I come from. I mean, there's all of that in the back of our students' minds, as well as in the teachers' minds as they are trying to teach online. So uh, the concerns about family members. So I, I would inc encourage teachers to allow those conversations to come forth. Um, for those teachers who involve, uh, who include devotion times, whether it's really strict with scripture and music and all of that, or if it's just a time of reflection, allow students to uh, exercise their spiritualities in ways that affirms their bodies and the bodies of their loved ones uh, in a spiritual way. Uh, and let that be uh, the setting for which um, uh, they acknowledge moving into the lesson. Because in the end, it is really, especially in theological education, it's about what we do for uh, the constituents that we are responsible for, whether it's in a congregation or if it's in a nonprofit, or if it's in theological education where someone will go on to be a teacher themselves. So acknowledging that uh, is important. Uh, and finding ways to do that creatively, uh, I think, is important. Um, and if it's going to be a beginning, also let it be an ending. So uh, a way of ritualizing coming into the space spiritually and then leaving the space spiritually is important. But I also want to say honor the body with some humor. Uh, <laughs> humor is important for all of us. I mean, we, uh, you know, there's, there's literature on laughing exercises a whole lot of muscles, right? Facial muscles and so on and so forth. And a good belly laugh is just really good. So, I mean, it could be as simple as a faculty member acknowledging, you know, this is my first time uh, doing a Zoom class or operating with a, a learning management system in a way that I didn't operate before. And use those opportunities to have fun, to laugh about it. Uh, now, that's kind of the low-tech type of humor. But the high-tech humor could be as much as Having students do TikTok and, uh, and, and, and all kinds of things uh, and to upload that uh, on the learning management system as well as share it with other members of the, of the, uh, of the class. I mean, it's, uh, and it could be structured or it could be impromptu. It, it's whatever, but humor is also important for the body that's in an online teaching setting. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a part of the spiritual life, I think, as well as the more sedate and formal uh, ways of gathering and expressing ourselves through song and prayer. Um, and I can come back to that. Uh, we can kind of tease that out. I'd like to, have, to hear some of your response in terms of uh, ways to be humorous, uh, even in the classroom, even on, online. Um, I, I want uh, those who are teaching online to realize that uh, not, well, let me say it this way. Um, being technically savvy has no, is not relegated to any particular age group. In other words, an 80-year-old person in your class could be technically savvy and a 22-year-old person could be horrified at technology. And let me just share my own experience. Um, when I, I taught a hybrid class uh, at Perkins where we would be online 
uh, probably 80% of the time, and then we would meet face-to-face -face in the classroom, uh, the other remaining 20%. It was, uh, so uh, I had made this assumption that, you know, uh, students who were young, who had these, all of these technical gadgets and iPhones and smartphones of all sorts, were just so comfortable in this hybrid space or in the online space. And that was just wrong thinking. Uh, I had one student who really did not function well uh, in an online teaching setting. Uh, she, she could not get herself organized. Um, she had problems staying up with the assignments. I had to adjust deadlines for her because uh, it was just not a space that she was comfortable working in. And um, so I was learning along the way and eventually discovered that she wanted to take her final exam face-to-face. Uh, -face. And I gave that option to students and she, she did very well on doing that. But it was something, it, uh, it, was, it, it was just sad that I had assumed that uh, because she was a young 20-something year old, that she was comfortable in that space of, of learning online. And that was not the case. So my point is, uh, just dismantle all kinds of your assumptions about age and, and being familiar with technology. It's, it's all individual. It's, it's all in terms of the in, uh, who the student is, but work towards making everyone comfortable in that space. And along that line, I want to uh, raise up the issue of um, justice for persons who are not traditional in the, um, uh, in the sense that some of us might understand. Now, those persons who've been teaching online and who've had some, a lot of experience with this uh, will know a lot of these things firsthand. I mean, I'm just offering some of my own experiences in teaching online. Uh, I discovered that persons who are, um, uh, who themselves are, are uh, in transitions, even with their own sexuality, and I'm speaking now specifically of transgendered persons, uh, uh, being in a Zoom setting probably may not be their choice. And the reason for that is because the whole physicality of the body as it transitions from one uh, genetic, phenotypic appearance of, of male or female to the next uh, could be something that they want to manage themselves. So something they want to have some uh, agency over. Uh, I will never forget that uh, in forming uh, the community of learners for my hybrid course, I had this assignment uh, for everyone to upload a picture uh, and talk about themselves so we could you know, form community. And uh, I must say, praise be to the Holy Spirit. I began to think through this whole process as I realized I had a student who was transgendered in my class. And, um, and in order for that, for that student to have agency, I needed to set the standard for everybody to make a decision on how they would present themselves. So I decided to can that assignment and I changed it to having students reflect on art. And I actually asked students to upload their favorite art and, uh, and to discuss it and have two or three students reflect on that as they introduce themselves. So they would introduce themselves what year they were in seminary, uh, and what denomination, if any, that they were affiliated with. And then uh, 
reflect theologically without the 50 cent words on the art that they up, that they uploaded and it was such a rich rich assignment i mean we got to know each other students were uploading uh, uh, photography I mean those who were photographers would upload things that they uh, had collected such as uh, uh, church steeples and lighthouses and some uh, had traveled abroad and they would upload pictures from cathedrals and uh, religious places that they have traveled to and some were even uh, visual artists themselves and they uploaded that information I would, I would have never known about all of those students who were in my class and their relationship to art in that way. But it also gave agency to all of the students, including the students who uh, were transitioning phenotypically with their bodies to upload what they want. So, so Evelyn, uh, Evelyn, you have said some very provocative things. So let me, let me just kind of backtrack, right? Let me, okay. let me get into the conversation that, um, Clearly, the, the issue with the, the student who was transitioning points to a larger uh, classroom practice that you, that you practice for this particular person. But so often, when we work with teachers, young teachers as well as seasoned teachers, they tend to look at their students generically and say, what one size fits all. If I have an assignment, I don't need to tailor the assignment, and I certainly can't change the assignment once I make it. What you just described was you saw your students, you recognized the needs of one student, that you didn't say education is generic, my course is generic, my relationship with my students is generic. And then you, in your very nimble way, said let me reorganize this assignment, even change this assignment, based on the needs of the people, not who used to be in my classroom, who I wish were in my classroom, who aren't in my classroom, but who are actually the students who you are in relationship with. I think, so you're talking about um, giving agency to your students, which very much you did, but I want to talk about your ability to see your students, see the needs of your students, and then your own agency as a teacher in your own classroom to pivot your assignment. I think that's a marvelous practice, first of all, of, of monitoring and seeing, not policing your students, but paying attention to who's in the classroom, who would be comfortable, who would be uncomfortable. Where did that practice come from? Why do you have that practice? Well, um, well, I, I think that I value building community in the classroom highly and find every opportunity to do that uh, in different ways and that uh, allows people to come on their own terms. Um, and I, I yes, it's, I've done this over time. I, I think I would like to say I've gotten better at it over time. Um, and I most recently, uh, in writing an essay on our beloved Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon, uh, really looked at some of the primary sources on how she built community. And now I have new insights on the importance of building community. And uh, so building community takes time. I mean, Dr. Cannon would have students write these autobiographies and she would read every one of them. That is a lot of time. Now, I had an opportunity to know some of these students as academic dean, but I didn't know all of them as academic dean. So I, I just wanted everyone to feel that they had their own say-so. That's what I mean by agency. They, that they came to the 
class on their own terms with their own expectations because if I had them on board in that way, I thought the rest of it was going to happen because I had, allow me to say, extended the hospitality that you know very well, Dr. Westfield, because uh, your mama is <laughs> the best I've ever known in extending hospitality to the table, uh, to the house, to the bed, to the whole family. So I wanted to invite students to be on this journey with me and using to just think through ways of how I can extend the invitation and they could, using this metaphor a little bit more, walk through that door and say, okay, well, I will come in and I'll take this seat and I'll sit here and I'll use this napkin and I'll use this plate. Oh, I don't want that particular plate because you see what I'm saying? That, that That's the agency to kind of take this metaphor on a little further. So, um, and it, it, uh, having conversations with students on the side, uh, I've also used uh, uh, three by five cards and I've had students to write to me so that I can get to know them by these little cards. Uh, and I'll go through the cards and say, oh, they're from uh, Philadelphia. Are they from, they're from, uh, they grew up in Houston. You know, just little things like that. You kind of formulate some understanding of who they are. Uh, in my earliest years of teaching at Perkins, probably about my first or second year, um, I would use uh, a technique that I actually learned at Wabash, and that was the quilt, uh, how students actually could, uh, this was a combination of things we would learn at Wabash as well as with um, uh, Teaching for Social Justice and Change. I think that's the book that I was introduced there, uh, where you could actually have students develop these quilt pieces that are aspects of their social location. And that gives you a sense of who your students are. So just kind of modifying those ideas and getting to know your students from that level is so important. Uh, but it's, it's good time spent. Um, it's good time spent so that you can move into the content, but even beyond the content. Because if you know a student, uh, and not to divulge with the, all of the class, all that you learn from them, because some students don't want you to tell all that they tell you. Oh, absolutely. So the compassion that you're talking about as a value in our classrooms is not um, pleasantries. It's not niceness, right? We don't want to shrivel compassion to niceness. Right. That the value of compassion is the building of an intellectual community. And that we as teachers with students, not at students, but with students, have compassion for them because of hospitality, of neighborliness, of community building. So much of us have fallen into the trap of, I'm a corporate agent, I'm a corporate institutional representative. We have standards, we have policies, we have procedures. And we know we do have all of that. But we are also human beings in community together. Yes. And it just so happens that the fire we gather around is teaching and learning, but the hospitality and the generosity of being there together is about community building. I love your spiritual tool of humor in the classroom, right? So you know that in this moment when things just feel so heavy, that the body is under attack uh, with the COVID-19 virus, that is about the body. 
So many of our institutions think that they are only about, the, erroneously think that they're only about the mind, right? The life of the mind, we still say um, these kind of erroneous things. And because then when things happen to the body, to the community body, the individual body, like sickness, like pandemic, we act like we don't know what to do with the body because we're just having a neck up experience, which is rather bizarre in the larger scheme of things. Yes. To interject humor and in the heavy ladenness of a heavy heart to say, let us be lighthearted. That's what I hear you saying in the use of humor in the classroom. Let us together become lighthearted. Let us let light shine through us. I'm going to use that language. Yes. Let us find ways to be jovial together um, and, and not to be so burdened and heavy laden. To do that for people in a classroom and to allow people to do that for you in the classroom, to not take yourself so, so seriously if you make a mistake. Yes. Students know you're not the sage on the stage. Students, <laughs> students already know that we're all in this together trying to figure this out, that this is your one of the few times you've been online. And even if you've been online a bunch of times, if the student can't figure it out. Yeah. So the, the notion of humor, now Evelyn, you know, I tease all the time. I joke all the time. I came from a household of Lloyd and Nancy that if you couldn't tell a joke, you couldn't come to the Thanksgiving table. That's what we did at the Thanksgiving. The stories had to have timing and rhythm and we were in there laughing and joking together. So I love the fact that you mention humor, that you use humor and you're encouraging people to be lighthearted in their classrooms. Yes, yes. And, and I want to add to that. I mean, just imagine if a, 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 chief, a faculty member who, uh, you know, came to Zoom and uh, they uh, uh, greeted their students and they had on their masks and they had on their gloves and they took off all of these layers. And even if they had on a, a shield and they just took them all off and said, mm -hmm. welcome class. I mean, that's funny. In the day of COVID, that makes perfect sense, right? <laughs> are saying we actually know what the reality is we are all on this zoom screen because we we are socially distanced we are physically distanced from each other yeah i mean and that's just simple yeah that's now simple. i might do my staff meeting next week with a mask on and, and hey, <laughs> so hey, apparently you know, we can't strong. waste these things apparently these uh these protective this protective gear is uh, of short supply yeah yeah so let's let's change the conversation to self-care, right? So we we are teachers now that find ourselves in these moments that we're still role models, students are still looking to us. Um, people are reporting that teachers have Zoom fatigue. So if you're teaching three, four, five classes in a semester, you're Zooming all day, you're still advising your students through Zoom or through some sort of electronic digital um, apparatus where you're sitting in a chair still yeah. all day. I had a friend who was complaining. She couldn't figure out why her back was hurting and she realized she had been in a chair for five hours the day before. Yeah. Because we're sitting in front of cameras, you're literally in, sometimes in the chair you at least get to move around. In yeah. front of these cameras, you're not moving. You're sitting, you're sitting in one spot yeah. trying to be in the little screens. That is the, it sounds like to me the exact opposite. That's antithetical to self-care. Yes. But that's where so many of us find ourselves. So in this moment, talk about self-care and this online teaching thing. Sure. Uh, and and uh, the self-care that does not honor the body is not helpful for anyone. I mean, uh, we know that exercise is, is, helps to boost our immune system. It lowers stress and uh, it helps us to increase our immune system. So uh, I, I know that um, uh, our our uh, default mode is lecture, right? And, and our default mode is to talk, 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 linguistically using the multiple intelligences. That's what we do. But give 
I think uh, for teachers to give themselves uh, permission uh, now and in the future to not always have to focus on the spoken word and sitting in front of the screen. Uh, we have the multiple intelligences that we can really resource for teaching, even in Zoom. It's not impossible. It's not a faux pas. It's not um, a, a, a bad thing to actually have students do introspective activities where they, uh, while they're on Zoom, they can scatter. And the screen is still there, but the students are in various places in the room or in their houses or their apartments. And they're doing introspective work. Uh, and the teacher can do that also. And even while you're in front of the screen, you can actually have students uh, to do introspective work. They can do intros, I mean, introspective work. I mean, they can do things with groups by using um, uh, face, Facebook or uh, texting, WhatsApp, those types of things, or even in the learning management system to honor their bodies. But the, the faculty member should do that too. Uh, I really like theater of the oppressed because you have all types of ways to use the body in communicating. Uh, but just the basics of standing up, I mean, literally standing up and using your bodies in ways to communicate complex concepts, even on Zoom, is possible. You don't Listen, have listeners, please know that Dr. Parker just stood up while we're being interviewing. <laughs> while the interviewing is happening, she's she's now exercising in front of the camera. Go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Parker. <laughs> it's true. So just stand up, and if you want to talk about what does your body communicate with COVID nineteen or the coronavirus, have students do that in silence, and it allows the body to stretch and probably contort and do things that uh, that approximate yoga, whatever. I mean, you can do that on Zoom and the faculty member can do that as well. But I also want to say that um, uh, we don't have to be so strict with these rules for teaching online. Uh, I must confess, I don't know all of the guidelines for teaching that is accredited and approved for uh, online teaching uh, that's probably in process. But I would say we're in a, a period of time where we are experimenting with various things. And if a faculty member uh, wants to try out some new things uh, like the theatrical type of movements to communicate complex ideas or creating, um, have students create things. I mean, uh, instead of um, the traditional paper, uh, I'm all about projects, right? So why don't, we have students, give students opportunities to create games and um, uh, short films or those types of things as synthetic ways to pull together the information. And the faculty member can model that. Uh, and while they might upload it on their learning management system, they can also do that within the classroom. So if your camera is wide enough, or even if it isn't, you don't have to just sit there and be a talking head. That's that's just a no-no for the body. Uh, and we're, we're more than just head up people, right? 
I've also been encouraging colleagues uh, for the students who are at home homeschooling their children to involve the children in the assignments for their seminary classes. Excellent. And that the professors, professors open up the assignments to including family participation in some way, shape or form, right? So part of what you're talking about is you're giving basic practices, basic ideas. Um, we're kind of brainstorming for people on how to do this online uh, piece without just words, right? That we just cannot sit and have word, 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 word. Yes. That the COVID virus is, there's, the reason why we're inside is because of the COVID virus and we're with our children. So incorporate children into the assignments that you're giving and the way that you're doing your assignments. Incorporate the movement of the body, incorporate art and photography, incorporate um, all kinds of creativity. But even as I say that, Evelyn, we, I think about the kinds of questions in the workshops that we, you and I have led together and separately at Wabash, that people will then push back. So I'm gonna be the people who push back. The people would push back would say, I am trying to get tenure. I cannot risk, you know, people, faculty, older faculty people, knowing that I said children's artwork is a part of my MDiv program. I cannot risk telling my students to meditate in class. I cannot risk that I'm trying to get tenure. Or I'm trying to be an expert in my discipline. I cannot teach in that way. I have to give content, content, content. And if these students don't measure up to my uh, scholarly excellence, my standard of scholarly excellence, then I have failed as a teacher, right? So speak to those people who would not hear these words as good news, but would hear these words as confounding and frustrating in a time where they don't see it as an opportunity and they don't want to take these risks. Yes, uh, thank you for that. That's an a important question, a challenging question as well. Uh, converting back to my experience as being academic dean, first of all, if those persons who are going to be the evaluators, if they are the, the uh, full professors and our associate professors that are on the tenure, rank and tenure committees, if they are experiencing teaching online, that in itself will be significant in transformation uh, because they will have been there and they will know uh, that this is not a cakewalk, this is not uh, inferior or secondary type of theological education when you're doing online teaching. Uh, also, uh, I would say that um, uh, students whose bodies and uh, their experiences and their families, all of who they are, are honored in the classroom as they learn, not only open themselves up to challenges of engaging material, but also will appreciate the teacher. And that should reflect in teaching, um, teacher evaluations. So most schools are going to consider uh, research and teaching and hopefully also uh, community service as three components, three essential components for tenure and promotion. Uh, the teachers that uh, uh, have the publications but don't have good teaching evaluations is not uh, in most situations uh, on a straight line towards being tenured. I mean, uh, if, if teaching is your one of, is, is uh, significant in your portfolio, you need to show evidence of good teaching, even in uh, situations such as this COVID-19 virus, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so good teaching should be reflected uh, 
will be reflected in teacher evaluations, which are central to uh, tenure and promotion. Um, students writing good uh, letters on behalf of teachers that they've had is going to be important. And uh, so delivering content in ways that is um, that students can receive it and be thoughtful and um, reflective about the content and, and then show that they have thought about it as they are being evaluated and, and through the various assessments, uh, as well as that they are being genuinely cared for in this whole learning process is a whole a part of is all a part of that teacher evaluation process. And that cannot be sidestepped, that cannot be ignored by a rank and tenure committee. Um, it has to be affirmed and acknowledged. Now, while an outside evaluator does not have access to what one is doing when they are teaching, uh, the persons who are uh, in the theological setting that are part of rank and tenure uh, committees will have access to that information. And they will uh, have the data for someone to be evaluated by students and our uh, observations. And, you know, I, for those persons who are uh, going to be evaluated for promotion and tenure soon, why not invite members of those committees to uh, be a guest on some of your online teaching? Uh, but control that. You make the decision on when you want them to do that. And then uh, let your students know that they're going to have guests, uh, not that they're going to act out or are they going to, you know, just kind of fake? Oh, we're having so much fun here, whatever. But, but in a to assimilate, you know, some of the same type to to do something similar to what um, would really have take place if it was doing the traditional way of being observed during this tenure promotion time. That's very uh, helpful. That's very helpful. Let me and let me ask you a final question. Um, there are either entire classrooms of marginalized um, students, students who are in marginalized groups in the United States, um, students who daily must survive oppressive systems. There are also classrooms that have one or two, three or four, a, a smaller percentage, but still marginalized people are there. We need to sensitize ourselves to the fact that marginalized people and oppressed people have less health care than most people. They have less wealth than, than other students. They have less access to alternative means than majority students. Help us understand if there are students in our classrooms in this moment who are not paying attention because when their spouse is unemployed, they have no income, that when they try to get access to already poor health care and there is no health care, and they're taking for one, two, or three people in their homes and still trying to go to class at the same time. Like, how, how do we get a handle on the different kinds of students in our classrooms are up against different kinds of walls because of their socioeconomic location in this country? And the crisis has just exacerbated the situation. So the United States moving toward a two-class system, we might be hitting that right now. That's right. Yeah. How, how do we have the eyes to see that person without, um, ex without telling that person you're wrong for being the victim of oppression? 
How do we support that person? What can we do in the value of compassion to know that if you are a minoritized person in this country, you are hit two, three, four times harder than the average person during this pandemic? Thank you. That's a beautiful and very important question, Dr. Westfield. Uh, I would say uh, during this time, and even during traditional times, I've had students that were homeless uh, that uh, would say to me, I was wondering why the assignments were late and discovered the student had to find a place to go where there was free Wi-Fi to upload uh, an assignment or upload a, on a discussion board. So as in, that was in quote unquote good times. Mm -hmm. So now this is exacerbated, right? Uh, so uh, I would say it is incumbent upon the teacher to check in with the students individually, um, especially when you see some indicators that they're, they're, they're not connecting and that, and to find out what is happening, you know, to just ask them what is going on um, through an individual email, or um, if, if it's not too much to share um, your cell phone number, uh, to share that, or the important thing here I'm trying to say uh, is to stay connected with the students in every way you possibly can. And they can't go, if they're in, in a place like Dallas, Texas, they can't go to um, a, a, a Starbucks or a McDonald's to, uh, to be online for three hours in a Zoom session because that's prohibited. We are in a, a shelter in place. And if they're in their car, um, if they don't have access to internet, they just can't do that. So don't, I would suggest that the faculty member check in with the students individually to see where they are and how you can help them move through this time and still be given opportunity to share what they are learning and adjust the learning for that student, uh, customize it for that particular student. Uh, it's gonna take a little extra effort, a little extra time, but it's, it's worth it, it's worth it because it's just what we are called to do, right? Um, the student has to have access to you, uh, share your email or share your cell phone if you can. If you have an extra phone uh, and you don't want to give them your home regular phone number, share that and or just use your office phone and let them call into that and teach through your office phone if you don't want to share your personal phone number. But it's just essential that you stay connected with the students in the ways that will be helpful for them. For many teachers, we will be the lifeline for students beyond their, beyond their situations um, and to stay connected, to not rely on the deans to do it when we're connected to students one-on-one. -on -one. The deans will be doing their part, not to rely exclusively on the ch school chaplains to do it. They're doing their part, but we also have to do our own part. That this notion of building intellectual community, moving into um, what it means to be compassionate with each other, to be gracious with each other, I know uh, some colleagues have said that they have told their students, no matter what, you will not fail this class. Let us all do the best we can at this time. Yes. And I promise you, you will not fail this class. That relieves the burden of so many students who are struggling with things that we cannot see what their struggle is. Exactly. exactly. Dr. Parker, I thank you for this conversation. Thank I you. appreciate you. I, you and I have known I, each other and been in the struggle for more than 20 years. And yeah. Dr. Parker, you don't you look a day older, Dr. Parker. You look more. Thank you for that. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> no, right.
will see you soon. His technical assistance. That's right. Our sound engineer, Paul Myrie, is still with us. All right. Thank you so much, Evelyn. Thank you, Dr. Westfield. I appreciate this. And we're out. How was that, Paul?